From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. Natalie W. Nixon is a PhD, consultant, and regular contributor to Inc. Online Magazine. Her latest book, The Creativity Leap, provides a fresh look into how to cultivate creativity in the workplace, whether that's in person or virtual. In this episode, my colleague Keenan Corrigan chats with Natalie about her wide-ranging background in cultural anthropology, fashion, and service design. You'll learn the difference between wonder and rigor and how the secret to creativity is balancing those two things. You'll also hear advice on how to take your business to the next level using your creative juices. Keenan's conversation with Natalie Nixon is now on Ideas Elevated. All right, Natalie, well, thank you so much for joining us on Ideas Elevated. We worked together a couple of weeks ago on a foresight workshop for Lift Labs, so I'm really excited to be chatting with you today about your book, The Creativity Leap, and how our founders can tap into what you call their creativity quotient. Thank you for having me, Keenan. It's super good to be with you again. Absolutely. So you have a pretty amazing background. You studied anthropology for many years. You were a professor for 16 years. You worked in fashion overseas, and you're a dancer. So I'm curious, how did that path lead you to become an expert on creativity and foresight? You know, during the time when I was doing so much meandering, it didn't quite all make sense. But now, you know, in hindsight, it completely does. I always say I have a very loopy background, as you just described. I finally, in my early 30s, embraced being what I call a hybrid thinker. And um, now I understand and realize that my indecisiveness and my curiosity and my inability to choose Am I more of a business type or a creative type? Am I uh, going to go the route of, you know, totally pursuing fashion design and design in its kind of purest sense or strategy? You know, and now I, I, I understand and what I really try to help a lot of other people embrace is that that's a false dichotomy. Most of us, the majority of us, just because the ways our brains are designed are incredibly hybrid. And what tends to happen is that in, our, in the way we're educated, right? We're, we're forced to choose. We're forced to have a specialization. We're forced to have a major. And we, we end up rewarding on those points. And a lot of what I've come to realize is that the future of work and the future of learning was going to be actually much more valuable rather than a specialization is to be much more of a polymath. So all of the things you described, um, you know, I always say anthropology equipped me with a way of viewing society by framing questions differently. Because uh, anthropology has what I call more the worm's eye view of society versus the bird's eye view that I think we get from disciplines like sociology and poli sci and econ. And then fashion gave me an ability to have an incredible appreciation for the role of technology and logistics in business, but also the role of beauty and desire and building consumer insight. So all of those things have just kind of conspired to equip me for the way that I advise leaders today. Absolutely. And that definitely resonates with me. I'm about 10 years into my career at this point and have followed a similarly meandering path from Department of Defense to outdoor education and now to entrepreneurship. And so it's great to see where I could potentially end up one day. Yes, absolutely. 
the book and really the entire concept that you're sharing with us merges all of these past experiences that you've had in a really amazing way. So was there a single moment over the past 10 years where you were like, yes, creativity, this is it, this is the thing? You know, it wasn't a single moment. I I, re- I kind of think of my life in terms of chapters. So probably the chapter of my life where that really resonated with me was I was towards what I now realize was towards the end of my career as an academic. I had launched a strategic design MBA program at Philadelphia University, which is now Thomas Jefferson University. This was after having completed a PhD in the field of design management. And design management completely, you know, was one of those mind blown <laughs> experiences because I finally found a field that was very integrative that merged creativity and strategy design and business. And it was in the process of building this strategic design MBA program, you know, now equipped with scholarship and frameworks and and a whole new way of, of thinking and researching that I was being exposed in my professional circles to more people in the startup world, to more people really on this quest to build cultures of innovation in their companies. But there was always this nagging feeling as I, as I would talk to them, sometimes in an advisory role, sometimes, you know, a, a partnership collaboration as they were trying to become more quote unquote innovative. And the nagging feeling was just that I feel like we're, we're kind of talking around and over each other. Sometimes when we talk about innovation I define innovation as invention converted into value, right? So for, we can invent a lot of things, but until we actually apply financial value, cultural value, social value to it, it's not really innovation. And it also has to be scaled. Invention has to be scaled in order to become innovation. But still, we need a kind of like this lingua franca around innovation. And that's when I went back to what I know, which, you know, all of the work I had done on improvisational organizations, using metaphors from jazz music to explain that, my own personal development and background that was so much influenced by having studied modern dance for many years. And I realized there was something that artists can really teach us. Artists are kind of burdened with leading the charge in creativity in our society, which I don't think is fair to artists. They're just really excellent at grappling with the ambiguity of creativity, wrestling with it. And it occurred to me that how might I be helpful and do a lot of thinking about how to kind of make creativity more accessible to other people. I'm so tired of people saying, oh, I'm not a creative type because I can't fill in the blank, draw or paint, right? Dance, right? right? And that's, that's not all that creativity is. So it was in that chapter of my life of really trying to translate what innovation is that I realize, in my opinion, we actually have to start with creativity. Sure. And I think that really ties great into my next question for you, which is that in your book, Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work, the core message is really that regardless who you are, if you're a startup founder, a lawyer, a scientist, a teacher, creativity matters. 
And it's something that you can pull into your work and incorporate, and you should incorporate it into the work that you're doing. But you have a pretty specific definition of creativity in the book. So could you dive into that a bit for us? Sure, Keenan. I define creativity as our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems and to produce novel value. And I got to these ideas of wonder and rigor because of the the nerd in me, the geek in me that, um, you know, going back again to that very challenging chapter in my career, it was, it was challenging. It was also exciting. I, I decided to earn a PhD while working full time oh I did that in, in four years, but that required me to steep myself in a lot of the literature around chaos theory and complexity. So fast forward the way I'm defining creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor really connects to complexity theory. And I, and I really borrow a lot from the work of D. Hawk. D. Hawk is the, was the first president of, of Visa, the credit card company. And mm. he made up this word, K-ord, which is a combination of chaos and order. And he was really on this mission to, to figure out how could we make organizations that really embraced the way we are as humans, which is this mixture of chaos which is randomness okay, and order, which is structure. So, so chaos is not anarchy, it's randomness. Order is not control, it's structure. So when I talk about creativity being about wonder and rigor and toggling back and forth, you now can hear that influence that I have uh, from DeHock and chaotic systems thinking, which is the academic term of it. So wonder, chaos manifests itself as wonder, in my view, and order manifests itself as rigor. So so wonder is awe, it's pausing, it's audacity, it's asking big blue sky, what if questions and rigor is time on task, it's discipline, it's intensive study and focus, and both are essential for creativity. And then there's the intersection of wonder and rigor that you were just talking about. And then surrounding those are improvisation, intuition, and curiosity, correct? Yes. Um, I'm missing the third eye. There's three eyes. Inquiry. Inquiry. In the subtitle of the book, we called inquiry curiosity, right? I call that the three eye framework that we we have to exercise those three eyes of inquiry or curiosity, improvisation and intuition in a regular way in order to really ignite wonder and rigor. That's how it really comes alive. But it does require that we're always curious, that we learn to ask different questions, that we learn to be super present and adaptive by improvising. Doesn't mean that you have to be an, an expert comedian like on SNL, <laughs> Saturday Night Live, and that we, we tap into our intuition. Intuition is a type of pattern recognition. Absolutely. And I mean, you alluded to this a little bit before, but there's this idea that's going around that if you're not innately creative, that creativity is inaccessible. And I am also guilty of thinking that way. Whereas like, oh, I'm not into the arts. I don't uh, play music. So I'm not a creative when in fact, creativity flows through the work that I do in so many different ways. Um, So you talk about how creativity is a competency that you can practice and grow. So how can our founders practice creativity? 
Being a founder can be a very exciting and also isolating journey because you're so heads down, you're so passionate and intensive about what it is that you're working on. It's very important to have a posse, a group of allies, um, a group of advisors, whatever you want to call them, who are super diverse in their perspectives, right? So if you're doing a startup in healthcare, don't only have people to kind of spark and and reconfigure thinking who are coming from the healthcare space, have people coming from music and coming from uh, environmentalism and, and all sorts of other areas. So that kind of cognitive diversity causes creative abrasion, which is something that Jerry Hirschberg is, that's a phrase that Jerry Hirschberg created. Jerry Hirschberg used to be the head of, of design for Nissan International. And whenever he, w- he was working on a project for, for this automotive company, Jerry Hirschberg would insist that the teams be super diverse, that not only have people from design in the room around the table, but also from sales and from manufacturing and from finance, because all of those people will come up with different questions to help you look at this challenge differently. So, so one piece of advice for startup founders, leaders, is to really make sure that your cadre of inspired thinkers and counsel and advisors are actually diverse, diverse in terms of their backgrounds, their skills. And, you know, the questions that they will challenge you with, you know, don't shrink away from that. That will totally inspire a new way of of framing your offering. And another piece of advice I would say, so that's, I would say it's kind of more on a professional level, just how you're structurally thinking about building your your product or your service, your experience. Uh, But it's also important on a personal level to be a clumsy student of something, like get out of the building. And I I don't have scientific evidence for this. It's just my my own anecdotal theory that when we are a, a clumsy student of something outside of the grind of work, it naturally forces us to be curious, to ask questions very differently and always be asking questions. We don't know what the heck we're doing to be improvisational, which improvisation is really about being adaptive, emergent and self-organizing. It is the epitome of a complex system. If you think of jazz music, if you think of what of comedic improv, that's, that, that's what it is all about. So being a student, a clumsy student, means you're constantly having to adapt, you're emerging, you're having to think on your feet. And third, being a clumsy student means that you have to intuit. You've got to follow that nudge of, I think this is where I should now be trying this and just following the breadcrumbs. So for me in my personal life, I'm a clumsy student. Even though I studied dance for many years, I'm now a clumsy student of Foxtrot oh. and Tango, <laughs> and I'm not good at it. Yet. <laughs> and um, I have a great teacher right now during COVID-19. We, we, we're kind of on pause and they're doing the stuff, virtual things through Facebook. But, you know, it's always learning. And I also, by being a clumsy student, I also hope people embrace this fact that our teachers come from everywhere. And it's really important to tap into teachers from a number of different areas. So, and, and I know I'm giving examples from the arts. But here's another one. Um, my mom, who's now 80 years old, when my mom turned 50 30 years ago, she up and learned to play the cello. Oh, that's amazing. And she's still playing. 
and she still has the same teacher. And now she tunes into YouTube videos to, to get other <laughs> insights about finger positioning and, and different interpretations of things. So anyway, be a clumsy student. It just will help to inspire you to, to, to disconnect. And that's the way, what our brains need so that we can, a problem that we've been staring at so intensively, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get new enlightened thinking later. Sure. I love that phrasing, clumsy student. It gives you permission to be messy in the learning process. Yes. Um, which I think we're often a little bit afraid of. Yeah. And not take yourself so seriously. Yep. Absolutely. I certainly can't when I'm bumping <laughs> or Foxtrot. Uh, I wish I could see that. Oh, well. Um, I'll post some videos later. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. <laughs> So founders have to be creative because they're often solving new problems, creating new solutions, or building something from nothing. But in your experience and all of the conversations that you've had, do you think that founders often describe themselves in that way? Would they say that they're creative? Some do, but I think we have such a culture of being solutions-oriented, even in the very hard and robust press of constantly pitching your idea and yourself and to get investors to look at you to even take stock. There is this kind of faux assuredness that you need to have. And creativity is really about falling in love with process. I would just, you know, recommend that even though it may feel counterintuitive to embrace the process, to start and lead with process, to start and lead with the questions that you had that got you on this path to start developing this new app or product or service or experience. And the right investors will really love that, will really recognize an authenticity to you're exposing the questions that you've been needling on, the fumbles that you've been having, the process that you are following along and sometimes you mess up and other times you pick back up again but and this is the learning that you got from it and that then is exactly what creativity is and so being able to really say we are creative in this process and here's how here's an example here's a story when um, will really speak volumes to to you as a true innovator yeah absolutely and when we're talking about the three I's that you outline, inquiry, intuition, and improvisation, you say that intuition in particular is deeply important for entrepreneurs. So what made you draw that conclusion? That conclusion came from actually from paying attention to what I call the origin stories of startup leaders. Okay. So I remember I, I mentioned that there was that chapter in my career as a professor when I had launched this strategic design MBA program. And in that time, a lot of my professional networks started to sync a lot more with startup leaders and startup leader communities and innovation conferences and that sort of thing. And whenever a startup leader would tell their story about how they began, there's always this moment when they will recall something told me not to do the deal <laughs> or something told me to work with her over him. And I started kind of, it's my background in, as an anthropology. I kind of collect my friend, Valerie Jacobs likes to say the stories are data. 
too. So I, I would collect these anecdotes as data points. I thought to myself, this is so interesting. We, I think they're talking about intuition. We never talk about intuition in MBA programs, in medical school, and law school. But every successful leader unapologetically references these moments. And so that's what really caught my attention. And I decided, I think that intuition is a type of pattern recognition. It's that nudge that I've seen this before. I felt this. I, I believe, even though I don't have any rational, logical underpinnings for it now, that this is the direction we should go. And in the writing of The Creativity Leap, I interviewed over 50 people who come from science and law and farming and cosmetics and beauty and education. And, and you know, I remember in particular, I was interviewing Biplab Sarkar, who is the CEO of Vectorworks. He's a PhD in engineering. And I thought to myself, gosh, when I start talking about it, about intuition, he's going to think I'm cray cray because, you know, I thought <laughs> PhD engineering tech firm. But he totally you know, went down this path of sharing how much, how important intuition is in his work, in his leadership style. And what I saw over and over again, the intuition is a tool for decision-making. It's not enough just to have the nudge, the feeling you have to act on it. It's the, it's the intuition followed by action that makes it part of our muscle memory that it helps to, for it to get stronger and louder and clearer. And do you think that there's a way for people where, leaning into intuition doesn't come naturally or it's something that you want to run away from. Is there a way that we can practice that to get better? One way I think we can practice it is just to start documenting it, recalling it. So an exercise I'd like to take people through is to start keeping stock of those nudges. And one way is just historically to recall three moments in your life when you have followed your intuition and what was the outcome. And then two or three moments in your life when you did not follow your intuition <laughs> and what was the outcome, right? And sometimes when we have, and I don't know about you, but in my life, when I recall on the times when I didn't follow my intuition, I was disappointed later. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And when I did, despite any rational data for, for doing otherwise, for doing so, I, I was delighted. I was surprised. There was there was a really rewarding outcome, and I think that we need to re that memory, that reminding of to ourselves that yes, this absolutely turned out okay. Even though you were terrified at the time, even though you can explain it to anybody, even though some people thought you were a little off base, you did it, and the outcome was X. So more of a reason to keep doing that, right? So yep. that's, that's one piece of advice I would have. That's great. And I'm going to try that exercise myself. Awesome. One of the things I really enjoyed about your book was that the, at the end of every chapter, you had an exercise that the reader could do for themselves personally and for their organization, which I thought was a really great way to put the ideas into practice. And I've done one or two of them. Awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you enjoyed that. So Bringing all of this together, how can startup leaders and founders incorporate your wonder rigor model or the three eyes into their organization? So 
Thank you for that question. That's that's like the, the, the key, right? Net net, a lot of these principles that I write about and talk about really fall under the category of change management and organizational design. And as we know, change does not happen overnight. So it really starts with leadership. And I'm not only talking about leaders at the top of the hierarchy, I'm also talking about who I call emergent leaders. There are leaders embedded in our organizations mm-hmm. who are sometimes on the front lines on the margins sometimes they're they're been in the organization for so such a long time they can be overlooked because they may not have a, a high lofty title but they lead through their actions they lead through their behaviors and they lead because of their institutional memory so one of the ways to start to shift to a wonder rigor culture and a culture of creativity in order to build these cultures of innovation is to hire for creativity, which means that we have to interview differently. I'm on the board of a really core organization called Leadership and Design. Its executive um, executive director is um, Carla Silver. And she shared with me about a really cool way that they have of conducting interviews where, for example, they ask someone to bring a photograph, either they'll ask them to bring a photograph and explain the meaning it has for them. If it's a longer, like half day interview, if it's maybe like the second or third round, they, they do a lot of work with schools and, and in education. They ask someone maybe over the lunch break to take a walk around the campus, around the environment, take a photo with their, with their phone and explain why they took that particular photo. There's just a different level of insight that you get from people about their thought process, their thinking process, their the, um, how comfortable they are with the visual realm, uh, how comfortable they are with story and storytelling. So that so that's one idea. So we start to interview differently. Another tip is that we really work ardently at breaking down the silos. Most organizations really are challenged with so many silos because you know we hire for X type of expertise and then we plug them into this group, but really trying to ensure that we have this kind of cognitive diversity and creative abrasion that Jerry Hirschberg was so good at doing has to be intentional. It means it is also scary because it means that the same people can't always be in front of the room. It also means that you have to be what I, I talk about in the book is a really good translator because as soon as someone from engineering or sales gets in the room and I have to explain the way I do things that to my team, we have our jargon, we have our our, our, our way, it requires you to simplify, to distill. And when you can simplify something, you actually understand it. And the other uh, piece of advice I would give is to try to have fewer meetings. Um, <laughs> so many of my clients, especially on the, on the corporate scale, they're running from meeting to meeting to meeting and really start to edit and prioritize and really try to understand, even in this time of Zoom conferencing, we hear some people talking about their Zoom meetings from eight in the morning till 7 p.m. at night. Yeah. What if your organization cordoned off time for when we're going to have meetings, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., and you held yourselves to it and you asked your clients, you held your clients to it as well, you would be shocked that people will respect that. And it gives your team time to do the deep focus work that they need to do outside of a, of a, a laptop screen, and then the more the the work of collaborating, discussing, and breaking things down. So those are some ideas. I love that last idea. 
I might try and implement that one. That's great. <laughs> and I really like the point around interviewing as well. I think when we in all companies think about hiring, it's so focused on the resume and the skill set. And if the person has the skill set that we need for the role, and you don't always think about the creative fit or the cultural fit and how it aligns and what you're really hiring for. So I think those kinds of exercises are a great way to incorporate that into a process. Well, can I just say one more thing about a creative fit? I'm going to be launching an online course on creativity, and I've actually um, been getting tutelage from a wonderful uh, woman named Danielle Leslie. She does all this type of training on, on developing online courses. So I'm, I'm getting, I'm in a learning mode myself, so I can, you know, best develop and, and deliver this online course. And she has a wonderful phrase that she uses that we shouldn't want to be a culture fit, but we should want to be a culture ad. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that that's again from Danielle Leslie. I love that because that actually is really what I'm what I mean when I talk about cognitive diversity. It's like don't just hire for people who will naturally fit your culture. You want to get a few instigators and provocateurs in there, people who will frame questions very differently, who will add to the culture, as, as Danielle Leslie likes to say. 100%. That's a really fantastic way of putting it. So Another thing I think ties in pretty nicely to this model and the thought process around it with startup leaders incorporating wonder rigor is that we had a speaker a few weeks ago named Alex Kantrowitz. He wrote a book called Always Day One, and he really connects that leaders of technology organizations and startups need to be facilitators and they need to facilitate communication, collaboration, and growth within their organizations. So I think that ties nicely into wonder rigor. And you have to facilitate that for your company. You have to be the one who is instilling that in the many different layers and bringing that in. Um, and I think it ties together pretty nicely. I love that. And the I do a lot of facilitation with my foresight studios. And I did a facilitator training two years ago, because even though I was professor for 16 years, I didn't assume that I knew all it all. So it was really, it was really great training. The etymology of the word facilitate, facile, it means easy. So when we are really good facilitators, we're actually making it easy for people to work together, to learn something new. It's not about stage on stage. It's not about being out in front, but it's, it's, it's doing our best to set people up successfully so that they can easily flow together, so they can easily uh, connect. And so that's the connection of you encouraging your cohorts to facilitate because it's about collaboration. It's about being in flow and, and flow is ultimately creativity. Oh, amazing. That's great. So recently over the past year or so, you've been writing and talking about the future of work as a topic. And that's actually one of Lift Lab's focus areas for 2020. So how does that concept of the future of work tie into the need for creativity in an organizational basis? Well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> right now, so the future of work is really been disrupted because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But the way I have always been thinking about is in terms of what we now call the fourth industrial revolution. So we currently are in this fourth industrial revolution where technology is ubiquitous, right? AI, AR, VR, robotics, the train has left the station. So 
the interesting conversations are around, in my opinion, um, not this kind of dystopian narrative like th- that the robots will take over and not a completely utopian narrative that, oh, there's nothing to worry about. Everything will be fine. Everyone will be able to keep their jobs. That's not going to happen either. But it's really about organizations that can figure out how the technology is here. It's only going to become more uh, present in our in our work. How can we use the technology to amplify what it means to be uniquely human and to ensure that, okay, if kind of basic task type of work will now be replaced with computers and with robots and all sorts of cool AI algorithms, what does that now free us up to do? What's the upskilling and the reskilling that we have to ensure not just happens in our organizations, but also in our educational systems? I think I've been saying for a while we're going to see a return to the apprenticeship model, uh, not the apprentices of the Middle Ages, but definitely this real embrace of learning by doing. I think who knows how higher it will recover after COVID-19, but I believe we'll see a lot more partnerships between private sector and education. And it'll be much more about learning. The economist Dan Ariely, who's an economics professor at Duke, I tuned into a webinar that that he was giving, and he said the real winners out of COVID-19 will be those who are in the learning business. It was interesting. He didn't say those in the education sector, but who are about the business of learning, right? Lifelong learning. Those will be the real winners. So any organization, any new product, service, or experience that's going to tie in learning into uh, what you're doing in healthcare, in finance, in transportation is really going to be the winner. Can you think of any organizations that are already doing that or are doing that well right now? Um, actually, and, and maybe this is not the best answer to your question because it's kind of in learning, but I, for Mother's Day, my husband gifted me with a year-long subscription to Masterclass. Oh, cool. Best gift ever. <laughs> and I just started. So I've been taking uh, Anna Wintour's class. The, you know, she's the chief creative officer of Condé Nast, and she used to be head editor of Vogue magazine. And... You know, on this platform, what I love is you have these thought leaders from cooking and from technology and from law, from business, and I'm able to tap into their expertise eight minutes at a time. They built this whole community platform that I will you know, take advantage of as, as I progress in the, in the experience, but they really are doing a phenomenal job of creating an experience around learning that's on this virtual platform. So I'm saying, I don't know if that's the best answer because it's already kind of a learning type of company, but I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And I love what Masterclass has done in it's tapping into wonder. It's tapping into rigor. It's it, they have, they have additional readings you could do questions that they pose. Um, It's tapping into really getting people to be curious. It's optimizing technology. It's it's all about creative abrasion because of the all the types of teachers through you know these expert practitioners can tap into. So I think masterclass is a really cool example of model. I've been getting a lot of targeted Instagram ads for masterclass. Um particularly the cocktail making class and the gardening class, which I think tells you how I've been spending my time on lockdown the past couple of weeks. That's so interesting. That's nice. (laughs) Do it. They're awesome. I'll check it out. So to wrap things up, you talk about how 
a leap is necessary to cross boundaries and go into new territories. So what is one leap that you would encourage all founders to take right now? The leap I would encourage people to do right now is to embrace the pause. On my website, I have, when you go to figureeightthinking.com, there is on the initial carousel on the homepage, something called the value of the pause, and it links to a PDF. But even though this pause can be frustrating, it's happening on, on meta levels. So one is the, the whole world is paused. Our, our economy is going through a very scary moment right now. There's all sorts of, of terrifying projections about what this will mean in terms of type of debt that our country will have to take on or not. And the number of small businesses that are that are just in a, in a crisis mode. But this pause means we get to redesign our relationship with time. We need to do what I call the three R's, which is to restore, which is to take stock of present state, figure out what needs to go, what should stay. We can do the second R, which is to reorient, which is practicing a bit of the foresight that I did in that webinar with Lift Labs. And then we can reboot. And as scary and as counterintuitive as it may seem, to be embracing this pause when where there's so much survival survival mode and practical stuff that has to happen, I think that's super. That's a very important leap to make right now is to embrace the pause. Awesome. Well, I challenge everyone to do exactly that. Uh, but Natalie, thank you so much for your time today. And if folks are interested in getting your book and learning more about it, how can they do so? Thanks for asking. They can go to Figure Eight thinking. That's the number eight, figureeightthinking.com. And when you go to the website, you can uh, sign up for the Ever Wonder newsletter and receive a free sample chapter of the book. And anyone who emails me, I just want to put this out there, Keenan, I'd love to share with them either, I'll either be sending them my uh, brainstorming tips uh, worksheet or uh, my wonder rigor tips. So if they just email me, natalie at figureeightthinking.com. Um, I will be happy to send them one of those worksheets. Excellent. Can you send me those worksheets? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Great. Awesome. Thanks, Natalie. Thank you, Keenan. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more information and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was hosted and produced by Kevin Schmidlin, mixing and editing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.